Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Scripture reading this morning is going to be Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 18. If you are using one of the Blue Pew Bibles, you will find these verses beginning on page 1006. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 18. But before we read the word, let us go to God in prayer, asking for his blessing upon the ministry of his word here this morning. Father, we thank you for your word, for it is the bread of life. We pray now that you would give us ears to hear it and hearts to receive it, that we might faithfully bring forth its fruit in our life to the praise of your glory. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 18. This is the very word of God. And every priest stands at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified." And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. That is the reading of God's word. As I said last Sunday, this is not your typical Advent passage, but it is an appropriate Advent passage. Advent is that season of the year when we celebrate and and remember Jesus coming into the world, His his coming as a, a little baby boy, born to a virgin in a stable in Bethlehem. But why do we celebrate this baby's birth? You know the answer. We remember and celebrate Jesus' birth because, as the angel said to Joseph, he came to save his people from their sins. His birth was announced by angels as good news of great joy for all people. And we continue to celebrate it as such today, some 2,000 years later, because he came, even as he said, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And it is his coming to give his life that is precisely the focus of Hebrews chapter 10. In this chapter, the author is unpacking for us the significance of his appearing once for all at the end of the age, as he said in chapter 9. His his appearing to put away sins by the sacrifice of himself. In these verses, we see Jesus. And in the verses before us this morning, in particular, we see Jesus as he stands over against the priests who served in the Old Testament tabernacle and later in the Old Testament temple. We see Jesus as the priest of a better covenant. Notice what he writes in verse 11. 
The author says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. The the contrast is clear. The contrast is is a contrast between the standing priests of the Old Covenant and Jesus, the sitting priest of the New and Better Covenant. The Old Covenant priests stood because their work was never finished. They had to offer the same sacrifices again and again, day after day, year after year. Because as we've seen in the the previous passages, the sacrifices that they offered could never take away sins. The sacrifices that they offered were merely shadows. They, They had the shape of what was required, but not the substance They pointed beyond themselves to what was necessary, but they were not themselves that which was necessary. A better sacrifice was was needed if our sins were going to be dealt with. And it is that better sacrifice that Jesus came to offer. He came to offer Himself as the sacrifice which takes away the sins of the world. And therefore, when Jesus had offered himself once for all time as a sacrifice for sins, he sat down. He no longer stands, but is now seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. And the implication that the author wants us to see is obvious. Jesus was able to sit down at the right hand of God after offering Himself once for all time because His sacrifice was better. His sacrifice did what the sacrifices of the Old Covenant could never do. The Old Covenant sacrifices could never perfect the conscience of the worshiper. But Jesus' sacrifice, as the author tells us, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. No additional sacrifice for sin is required. He has put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. He has dealt with sin decisively and and definitively. He has dealt with sin finally. No further sacrifice is needed. As as Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, he has canceled the record of debt that stood against us with all of its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So that Paul can say it is by his blood that we now have the forgiveness of sins. And so if you are here this morning and you see nothing else If you see nothing else this Advent season, this is what I want you to see. I want you to see Jesus seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. See Jesus as the high priest whose work is finished. Because it is in His finished work that you have hope. His finished work is your hope of glory. His finished work is the work by which you have been perfected. That's a hard word. What does it mean? What can it possibly mean? 
to say that we gathered here this morning, this motley crew? What, what could it possibly mean to say that we have been perfected? Now, obviously, it doesn't mean that we are now sinless. We will see in a moment that those who have been perfected are still being sanctified. Their, their sanctification is an ongoing work and thus a presently incomplete work. But they have been perfected. And that must mean something. So, so what does it mean to say that we have been perfected in Christ? Well, we know from the way that he has used that language earlier in this letter that, that when he speaks of our perfection, he is, he is speaking of our consciences being perfectly cleansed from the guilt of sin. That our guilt in its entirety has been wiped away. It has been covered. It has been removed as far as the east is from the west. This is what theologians refer to as our justification. We have been declared perfectly righteous. Not somewhat righteous. Not a little bit righteous. Not almost righteous. Not more righteous than we used to be. But we have been declared perfectly righteous in the sight of God. He has declared us righteous in His eyes. And this is precisely what the author wants us to see in his quote from Jeremiah 31. Look at it again in verse 17. He says that the Holy Spirit bears witness to our having been made perfect for all time when he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. That is God speaking. It is, it is God speaking about those who have, who have received and rested upon his Son, the one whom he put forward as the, the sacrifice for sins. Of them, God says, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. God has chosen to forget the sins of those who are in Christ. Now that doesn't mean that, that he forgets in the way that a corrupt judge forgets the sins of his friends. It doesn't mean that he, he forgets in the way that an overly indulgent parent overlooks the sins of his, of his children. God hasn't chosen simply to, to ignore our sins or to, to let them go unpunished, but on the contrary, He has graciously given His Son to stand in our place. He has given His Son as our substitute. He has given His Son that He might take our curse upon Him so that we might instead receive the blessing that He deserves. It's what we heard in the, the passage from Isaiah this morning. By His wounds we are healed. He has laid upon Him the iniquity of us all. This is the good news of Christmas. This is why we celebrate this little baby's birth as good news of great joy for all people. Because we serve a, a high priest who has offered himself once for all time to God on our behalf and who now sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is what we must see. And so let me ask you, do you see it? Do you see Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father? And do you see yourself in Him, perfected for all time. It's hard, isn't it? It's, it's hard to, to see ourselves as perfected for all time. 
And, and there are any number of reasons for that. I want to I mention two. I want to mention two reasons why it is hard for us to see ourselves as perfected. I think we sometimes struggle to see ourselves as, as perfected because of the heinousness of our sins. The things we have done are evil. Our sins have wreaked great havoc and have done immense harm. We have wounded other people. We have broken relationships. We have divided communities. We can believe that God would forgive the smaller sins of others, at least from our perception. But we struggle to believe that He would forgive our sins such as they are. Because we know intimately just how much damage our sins have done. Those are the thoughts that are blinding you to your own perfection this morning. If those are the, the thoughts that, that, that keep you doubting that you could be perfect in Christ. But I want you to hear me say that I do not deny in any way the seriousness of your sins. There, there simply is no hope down the road of, of downplaying the gravity of what you have done. Of, of, of pretending that it's not as bad as, as maybe it seems to be. It is, it is a common road in our world today. People, people try to argue that, that you're not as bad as you think. But such arguments fall on deaf ears because we know our own hearts. We, we know what we have done. We know the consequences of the things that we have said and the things that we have left unsaid. We know that our sins have, have harmed our neighbors. We know that they have broken relationships and, and destroyed communities. We know that sin is serious. And if you have committed such sins, and if you are wrestling with the, the consequences of the sins that you have committed, it is right for you to be grieved by what you have done. But there is no relief to be found in pretending that your sins are less than they really are. You must have a true sense of your sin. But at the same time, while you must not pretend that your sins are less than they are, you must not believe that Jesus' sacrifice is less than it is. You must learn to see the infinite value of Jesus' sacrifice of Himself on your behalf. You must learn to see that His sacrifice is far greater than even your worst sins. The blood of Christ is more than sufficient to wash away the guilt even of the chief of sinners. It is more than enough to ransom your life and to reconcile you to the Father. If you have been washed in His blood by faith, God says to you even this morning, I Remember your sins and your lawless deeds no more. That is the good news of Christmas. And so we struggle because, because we know this, the heinousness of our sins, but we can also struggle, not because we see our sins as so great, but because we see our sins as so many. 
We can struggle, struggle because of the heinousness of our sins, but we can also struggle because of our habit of sin. I mean, let's face it, it's, it's hard to see ourselves as perfected when we still sin habitually, when we still sin daily, hourly, even moment by moment. It's, it's hard to see ourselves as perfected when in reality we know that it's not just that we sin frequently, but that, that we sin in everything we do, that, that no action that we have ever taken has been entirely free of the defilement of, of sin. I know how, how hard it is when you are painfully aware of your own sinful habits, when you are painfully aware of how you fail to love God with all your heart and how you fail to love your neighbor as yourself, both by omission and by, by commission and thought and feeling and word and deed every hour of every day. When we, when we take the time to actually see our sin as it is, it can be overwhelming and it can feel like a crushing burden. It can feel as if no hope is great enough to rescue us from our sin. It is hard to believe that people like us could really be justified. But again, I would say to you, you must learn to see Jesus. And you must learn to take God at His word. God says that those who have received and are now resting upon Jesus have been perfected. They have been perfected for all time. God says that He will remember your sins no more. Will you call God a liar? Or will you take Him at, your, at His word? Remember, in his letter to the Galatians, Paul says, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. For we know that by works of the law, no one will be justified. They're verses that we, we cling to. They're, they're verses that we love, but are they verses that we believe your justification, your, your perfection before God was never based upon your own works. It was never dependent upon your own merit. You were justified. You were declared perfect in the sight of God on the basis of Jesus' finished work. On the basis of His merit. His once-for-all sacrifice of Himself. And therefore, if you doubt that you have been made perfect, you do not doubt your own righteousness but you doubt His righteousness. You doubt that His righteousness is, is sufficient to, to cover you. You're not doubting yourself, you are doubting Him. I mean, let's face it, of course you aren't good enough. We, we knew that from the beginning. That, that is no surprise to, to you, to your neighbors, to God. We, we know it to be true. That's why Jesus came. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul goes on to say, if justification were possible through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Christ came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. He came to pay a debt that we could not pay. Christ came to bring hope to the hopeless. Again, it's why his birth is good news of great joy for all people. Because he came to bring living hope to those who were dead in their trespasses and sins. And therefore, let us take God at His word. 
Let us believe him when he says that we have been perfected for all time, not by our own efforts, not by our own works of the law, but we have been perfected for all time by Jesus' single offering of himself. Let us learn to trust fully and to rest completely in the one who is now seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. But having seen Jesus seated, having seen him as the high priest who has finished his work, let us also see him as waiting. So that is what the text says. He is seated, but he is waiting. Seeing Jesus seated teaches us that his work is complete. It teaches us that there is no need for any additional offering for for sin, that by the single offering of himself he has perfected for all time the the consciences of those who, who are now resting upon him for salvation. But to see Jesus waiting reminds us that the full implications of his finished work are not yet fully worked out. In particular, the author mentions two consequences, two two implications of of Jesus' work that are not yet fully realized. We see the first in verse 13. Look with me there. Beginning in verse 12, the author says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his So the first consequence of of Jesus' finished work that is not yet fully realized is the subjugation of his enemies. We don't often think of Jesus as having enemies. So so who are these enemies that, that the author is talking about? Who are the enemies of Jesus? I think we can safely say that that Jesus' enemies include all the invisible spiritual powers who who sided with Satan in his rebellion against God. In our modern scientific age, we, we sometimes struggle to believe in such demonic powers, but the Bible, which we say is the very Word of God, which is inerrant in all that it teaches, is abundantly clear about their existence and their activities. There is a spiritual realm that we do not see with our physical eyes and is inhabited by spiritual beings, and some of those beings are evil. They are enemies of God and enemies of His anointed one, and they are haters of the church, and they are working actively with all of their spiritual power to destroy and undermine the people of God. This is reality. We don't often think of it. We we don't think of it as often as we should, but it is the truth that we live in a world where we have real spiritual enemies. Our fight, as Paul says, is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual powers of darkness. They are the enemies of Christ. But Jesus' enemies also include flesh and blood people. And that may be harder for us even to believe All the people who, in the vein of Psalm 2, rage against God and against His anointed, when all of the people who who shake their fist in God's face and say loudly, we will not be ruled by you. All the people who simply refuse to acknowledge Him as God or to give Him thanks. 
These two have made themselves the enemies of God. Paul says as much in Romans chapter 5. And in fact, in Ephesians 2, Paul links the two groups together. He says in in Ephesians, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Again, it's a a familiar passage. It's a passage that we refer to often to remind ourselves that that before we were saved by the mercy of God, before we were saved by the love with which He has loved us, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But do you notice how He described us while we were dead in our trespasses and sins? While we were following the, the passions of our own flesh? While we were sons of disobedience? He says that while we were sons of disobedience, indulging the passions of our flesh, we were following the prince of the power of the air. We may not have been Satan's friends exactly, but we were certainly co-belligerents with him against the kingdom of God and against his anointed son. We were, with the rest of mankind, by nature, enemies of God, enemies of Christ. And the author tells us here that the day is coming when all of Jesus' enemies will be subjected. They will be subdued. And that is good news. It is good news to know that the enemies of Christ will not win. It is is good news to to know that they will become His footstool. It It is good news because it means that in that day, when His work is brought to completion, there will be perfect peace. The shalom of God will be established from sea to to shining sea. Think of the familiar words of of Isaiah chapter 9. He speaks of a child who is born. He says, To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon His shoulder, and His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government and of His peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The Lord God Almighty will establish a kingdom of perfect peace, a kingdom of perfect righteousness, a perfect rule by David's greater son for all eternity. That day is coming. And it is a day that will be beyond our greatest imaginings. It's a day for which we long. We've even sung it this morning. A day for which we, we say, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Establish your kingdom on on earth as it is in heaven. We look forward to that day. We long for that day. And yet we recognize that that day is not yet. The author of Hebrews freely admitted it back in chapter 2 when he said, at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. We don't yet see it. The nations can continue to rage. The the spiritual powers continue to wage war against the Son and against His people. We see it and we we feel it every day. We we feel it in the ongoing battles in our own hearts and in our own homes. We we see it on the cosmic stage and the wars that rage between nations. We know that God's peace is not yet fully realized. But because Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father... 
we know that the end is not in doubt. We know that that day is coming. Jesus is not waiting to see if his enemies will be subjected. He is waiting until the day when his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. And because we know that that day is not in doubt, because we know that all the work has been accomplished, because we know that he now sits at the right hand of the majesty on high, it has profound implications for the way that we engage the struggle today. It means that we can see our struggle not as something strange. Think of Peter saying to uh, those Jews in the diaspora, saying, do not think that something strange is happening to you when the fiery trial comes. In this life, we will have trouble. It's what we expect in this present evil age, but it in no way causes us, or in no way should cause us to, to doubt the outcome. We know where this is headed. We know how the story ends. I was watching a certain football game last night with my son and a couple of his friends. But before entering the room that we were watching on, we had taped, they already knew the outcome. They had seen it on, on the internet or on uh, Instagram or something. They, they knew the outcome. Now, thankfully, they didn't tell me. Um, I didn't know the outcome. But, but they were watching in a very different way than I was watching because they knew who was going to win. That same lack of anxiety ought to be present with us in our daily lives. We know how the story ends. We know that His kingdom is coming. And so we do not see our present struggle as, as casting the end in doubt, nor do we see it as, as evidence that God has been unfaithful to His promises. God is working towards His end even now in the midst of the struggle. He is working all things together for good for that perfect end that he has determined will come to pass. And so we know that, that the struggles that we face now are not a threat to our ultimate good. Think of Peter in his, in his first letter saying to the people, he says, who is there to harm you if you are working for God in effect? Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Who is there to harm you if you have aligned yourself with the, with the king but then in the very next sentence, he says, now they may cause you to suffer. They may even kill you. But they can't harm you. And that's the confidence that we have in Christ. Because he is seated at the right hand of the Father on high. The implications are not yet fully worked out. We do not yet see all things in subjection to him. But we know that he is the Almighty King. And we know how the story ends. But it's not just the, the kingdom that we are waiting for. There is something else. There's a, another unfinished consequence that we see here in this text. And we, we see it in verse 14. The author says, For by a single sacrifice he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. We've already looked at that phrase, he has perfected. We, we've seen that as a reference to our justification, that we have been declared perfectly righteous in God's sight even now. Even now we are righteous. Even now we are perfected for all time. And yet, while we have been justified, we are being sanctified. It is an ongoing work. It is a process not yet complete. 
We are not yet perfectly conformed to the image of the glory of, of Christ. That can be discouraging, but I would encourage you to see it as encouraging this morning. It's encouraging because it means that, that He's not done with us yet. That He is still working. Paul refers to us as His workmanship. And that work is ongoing. He is continuing to, to conform us, continuing to, to shape us, continuing to, to transform us into the image of the glory of Christ more and more, day by day. He's not yet done with us. The benefits of Jesus' finished work are still being applied. And when you remember that holiness is health, when you remember that God's law is the, the blueprint for flourishing, when you remember that, 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 that Jesus is the picture of what man is supposed to be, it reminds us of, of the beauty of the good news. Holiness is, is not the sort of unpalatable thing that we must do for God in exchange for Him having done so much for us. Holiness is part of the gift it's the destination. It's, it's where He is taking us. And so for wherever you find yourself in the struggle this morning, when you see Jesus seated at the right hand of God the Father, you can remember that everything necessary to take you all the way to health has already been done. It's just simply a work in progress. But again, the, doubt, the outcome is not in doubt. And so there is coming a kingdom a kingdom of perfect righteousness and peace. And you are being fit for life in that kingdom for all eternity. He is perfecting you in the glorifying and enjoying of God forever. And even as the prophet Isaiah said, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. In fact, he's already done everything necessary in his son who now sits at his right hand. He is simply working out the details, working out the implications. You can know this morning that the day is coming when you will sin no more. The day is coming when you will stop doing those destructive behaviors that, that, that harm your soul so deeply and hurt those you love so grievously. The day is coming when the things that you do to, to fracture your family and your community will be no more. Because He will finish the work that He has begun in you. That's the hope of seeing Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father on high. He will not fail to bring to completion. He will not feel, fail to work out in full all of the good that was accomplished by His once-for-all sacrifice of Himself. And because all of this is guaranteed by His once-for-all sacrifice. Because the, the, the end is not in doubt. Because we will live forever in the kingdom. Fit for the kingdom. Because all of that is our inheritance in Christ. That is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we thank You for the good news of Christmas. We thank You for the gift of Your Son 
who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as the ransom for many. We thank you, Father, that, that he was faithful to the end, that he finished his work, and that by his finished work, we now have a sure and certain hope. Father God, help us to see him. Help us to rest in our hope. And help us to live day by day as heirs of the coming kingdom. Father, this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.